So this morning, um, we're continuing our series in the book of Revelation, and so if you've been with us, uh, there's some study guides in the back, and we're going to be looking at like really big chunks of Scripture the next few weeks, and so I'll apologize, there probably won't be study guides for that if you want. We do meet at 9.15 to talk about this, if you want to join for that, you're welcome. But I was thinking about how um, years ago, I was in eighth grade, and I had to go to the eye doctor because I did, they used to do those tests in school, you know, where they would do like the hearing and then the vision stuff at school. Maybe they still do. I don't really know. Um, but they did the vision thing, and apparently mine was not good. And, and they called me down to the office and said, hey, will you take this note home to your mother? Um, we think you need to get your eyes checked. All right, whatever. Take it home to my mom. And she goes, okay. So we go to the eye doctor, and the eye doctor says, yeah, you need glasses. And I'm like, I'm not going to wear these, but whatever. So they give me glasses. I take them home. I didn't wear them ever. Um, now, my senior year, I went to the eye doctor again, and I got contacts because like, I don't want. I played sports. My kids, glasses are hard. They fog up. They fall off. It was just I'm not doing it. Like I, I will tell you what happened. That I got those contacts and I walked outside. Did you know leaves have lines on them? You can see individual blades of grass. Did you know when I went to church, I could read the screen on the back wall that was like words like this big? I couldn't read it before. I'm like, okay, apparently, I don't know how I did anything competently in my life because I could not see. Um, and today, I can't imagine living life without glasses. I can barely like tell the colors outside when I go outside without glasses at this point in my life. But when, I, when that changed... My perspective changed. I was able to see radically different, right? The world became a radically different place for me because I could see stuff that I could no longer see before. And so everything was clearer, and it was like I had this new lens on life. I literally had new lenses, but I had a new lens on life. And so I was thinking about how, for many of us, we often don't see something clearly because we have the wrong perspective, or maybe even the wrong prescription, and so I was thinking, well, how often this is so true in the Bible, right? We, we, instead of recognizing the Bible is a story from God's creation in the beginning all the way through to God who loves us and pursues us and ends with God redeeming and restoring and making all things new. In the middle of that, he sends his son who says, hey, do you want to know how much God loves you or who God is? He's me, by the way. And he tells us his story through Jesus. And so that's the story of the scripture in a big picture. But I was thinking how sometimes... We miss the big picture of Scripture because we're, we're caught off by a little verse or a little passage, and we're like, oh, did you read that? And, and it's confusing. And so I was thinking how what we often miss is that those little passages or little texts cause us to miss the whole. Right? And so we talk about reading Scripture in this way. We talked about reading it in a Christocentric or Christ-centered way. In other words, we read the whole Bible in light of Jesus. It's why I... I not jokingly said last week, if you're just going to read just a little bit of the Bible, just keep reading Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John over and over and over again. Not to discredit the rest, but know who Jesus is if you call yourself a Christian. Sounds simple enough, right? We should want to follow Jesus, who is the Christ. I should know what he said and taught and did. Helpful. But I was thinking about how often, especially the book of Revelation, we get caught up in small pictures, small things, and they become for us these big things that we're kind of confused by and we're not sure how to read. And we go, well, I don't do this. And so we, I mean, we come up with all kinds of things. In fact, um, the book of Revelation was good news to the first century church. We've talked the last seven weeks about the seven letters to the seven churches and how 
the whole thing was written to those seven churches. And so I want to say something that happens. Like often people talk about revelation, like kind of like freaked out ideas, and they're just kind of scared and, and whatever. I, there's a lot, a lot of reason for that. But here's why. Because often we think of revelation as a part of what we'll call eschatology or the study of last things, study of end things. And so people go, well, you know, what's going to happen? The world's going to blow up. And I mean, even popular culture is like enamored with the idea of Armageddon. They don't know what it means in the Bible, and most of us don't either. But, but we're enamored with the idea of everything is blowing up. Side note, in case you're curious, give me a couple side notes today. One, that is not in the Bible. God's not going to blow it all up. That's not what Revelation teaches or says or lays out. However, uh, much of our imagination has been shaped by a guy named John Nelson Darby. I would ask if you've heard of him. Probably none of you have. John Nelson Darby, in the middle of the 19th century, was trying to understand not just Revelation, but like the Bible in some ways. He thought he could, it was part of the Enlightenment, where like, we're so smart, right? We're smarter than everybody before us. And, and he was going to say, well, here's, I think here's what happens in the Bible. I think God, in different dispensations of time, acts differently. Okay, red flag. We believe God is the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow, like forever. So John Nelson Darby's premise already I would have issue with, right? You can hold to some of his teaching if you want. Um, in our tradition, we have a kind of a big umbrella. We say, like, God created, and Jesus is going to come back. And you can hold to those two things, and there's some, some things within that that are okay. However, what this begins to teach us about the way God may be at work in the world and our understanding of Scripture, this idea that, that if God's grace is different in each generation, we would say, mm, no. Most of us. I would say no. Most scholars would say no. Although that has become the prevalent view uh, in American Christianity. For many reasons, like, you know, there used to be movies, you, I, this is before my time, but you go to like church camp, some of you like know this, and they show these movies trying to scare, scare you to death. Or maybe you, like me, I read every one of the Left Behind books. Fiction, not factual. Right? Like that kind of theology has shaped us in ways that aren't helpful. Uh, and so what we begin to see in that is then, well, what does it look for us then? How do we understand the book of Revelation? So maybe this picture is helpful. If I were to bring in here two pieces of art, right? Lots of us like art. If I were to bring in two pieces of art that from far away look exactly the same, but one of them was the actual painting, and you could see brush strokes, and it was like, oh, that's really cool. And the other one was a puzzle piece, right? It was puzzles put together. You know how people put puzzles together, and they, like, glue the backside or whatever they do, and then they hang it in the house? Some of you guys are like, yeah, I do that. Well, in the nicest way, we would all rather have the original canvas that was painted by the painter, right? It's going to look much better. No offense to any of our puzzle pieces, right? Like, there's a reason we do the puzzle. It's cheaper. But... Here's how we would often think about Scripture. Revelation is a picture book, not a puzzle book. It's the painting. It's the broad strokes. It's the brush strokes you can see from far away. You go, oh, that's beautiful. It's not, if I put this puzzle piece here and I move that one over there, voila, look what I just figured out. Because it's important for us, the premise we come from is that the early church understood this book, and so we're going to do our best to go, what did they think and understand? And how might we understand it in that way. So here's a phrase that might be helpful. Don't become preoccupied with isolated details. 
rather become engrossed in the overall story. Praise the Lord. Cheer the saints. Detest the beast. Long for the final victory. Right? So that's what we're going to be trying to do. And if you're going, well, I want to look at some of these puzzle pieces, then join me and a few others in the conference room at 9.15 on Sunday morning, and we talk about it there. You're welcome to come. Um, that's where we'll, have, we'll kind of do big picture in here, and if you want to talk about some of the smaller stuff, we'll probably do it there. So with all that in mind, we're looking at two chapters today, chapters 4 and 5, and they talk about two things that are central to the entire book of Revelation, the throne and the Lamb. Right, by the way, um, if you're going, man, this sounds like it's going to be boring today. I'm sorry, put your thinking cap on a little bit, like stretch your imagination. Uh, we're going to read these two chapters together. So it's long, and I'm sorry it's long. Don't worry, uh, we're not going to read every chapter of this whole book because we only have five weeks to get through the rest. So here we go, beginning chapter 4, verse 1. Here's what we find. After this I looked. And there before me was a door standing open in heaven. And the voice I had first heard speaking to me like a trumpet said, Come up here, and I will show you what must take place after this. At once I was in the Spirit, and there before me was a throne in heaven with someone sitting on it. And the one who sat there had the appearance of jasper and ruby, a rainbow that shone like an emerald and circled the throne. Surrounding the throne were twenty-four other thrones, And seated on them were twenty-four elders. They were dressed in white and had crowns of gold on their heads. From the throne came flashes of lightning, rumblings, and peals of thunder. In front of the throne, seven lamps were blazing. These are the seven spirits of God. Also in front of the throne, there was what looked like a sea of glass, clear as crystal. In the center, around the throne, were four living creatures. And they were covered with eyes in front and in back. The first living creature was like a lion. The second was like an ox. The third had a face like a man. The fourth was like a flying eagle. Each of the four living creatures had six wings and was covered with eyes all around, even under its wings. Day and night, they never stopped saying, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is, and is to come. Whenever the living creatures give glory, honor, and thanks to him who sits on the throne and who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before him who sits on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever. They lay their crowns before the throne and say, you are worthy, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things, and by your will they were created and have their being. Then I saw on the right hand of him who sat on the throne a scroll with writing on both sides and sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming in a loud voice, Who is worthy to break the seals and open the scroll? But no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth could open the scroll, or even look inside it. I wept and wept, because no one was found who was worthy to open the scroll or look inside. Then one of the elders said to me, Do not weep. See, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has triumphed. 
he is able to open the scroll and its seven seals. Then I saw a lamb looking as if it had been slain, standing at the center of the throne, encircled by the four living creatures and the elders. The lamb had seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God, sent out into all the earth. He went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who sat on the throne. And when he had taken it, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb. Each one had a harp, and they were holding golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of God's people. And they sang a new song, saying, You were worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals, because you were slain. And with your blood, you purchased for God persons from every tribe and language and people and nation. You have made them to be a kingdom and priests to serve our God, and they will reign on the earth. That I looked and heard the voice of many angels, numbering thousands upon thousands and 10,000 times 10,000. They encircled the throne and the living creatures and the elders and a loud voice they were saying, Worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and praise. Then I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and on the sea and all that is in them saying, To him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be praise and honor and glory and power forever and ever. The four living creatures said, Amen, and the elders fell down and worshiped. And you're going, Whoo, that's a lot. It is. I agree. We have to understand that this is like apocalyptic language, apocalyptic literature, and the way that's to be understood is it's kind of painting pictures, things they would understand. We'll talk more about that in the weeks and days ahead. But I was thinking maybe a helpful way to think about this is we've just talked last week about the church in Laodicea and how in that Jesus says to the church, to the spirit of the angel of that church, um, I'm knocking at the door. It'd be a good idea if you had church and you let me come in, right? It's a good idea to have Jesus come to church. makes sense. And how then we go from this picture of this knocking this door, and then a door is opened, and a voice says to John, hey, John, um, will you come here and see and enter into this heavenly realm? And so I was thinking a helpful picture. Um, Any of you fans of C.S. Lewis's, like the Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe? You know what I'm talking about, the Chronicles of Narnia? Yeah, some of you, hands up, good for you. Um, Me too. Um, but, But you know there's a scene, if you've seen the movie, maybe you've seen the movie, but you know, in the first one, the lion, the witch, and the wardrobe, the wardrobe is key. Why? Well, Lucy gets to the wardrobe, and she opens the door, and she walks in, and she enters into the realm of Narnia, or Aslan's realm, right? She goes from, but do you notice, she didn't actually leave where she was. It was like two sides of the same place, like two different realms in the same sphere. This is how we're to understand heaven in this text, that make sense with me right there? It's not like some far off place, but it's also near here in this place. It's God's realm in the midst of this kind of heaven and earth are intertwined. They're two sides of the same coin almost. And so not Lucy, but John enters into like the control room, if you will, not that God's like pulling levers, but the idea that, that he sees all that the earth is heaven and earth and under the earth. You enter into God's sphere in this text and John enters into this place. And then he sees some things. He sees 24 elders. And you're like, all right, well, cool. What are those? Well, here's what's helpful. Most scholars, pretty much across the board, 
And Victorinus, the first kind of New Testament writer for the book of Revelation, he wrote probably almost 2,000 years ago now, he wrote about how that when you look at these 24 elders, here's what they are. The 12 tribes of Israel would be 12 of the elders, and the other 12 would be the 12 apostles. And here is what they signify. The whole church. All of God's people have come together. All of God's people have come together in this place and this time. And what John is trying to do all throughout the book of Revelation, he's trying to paint pictures, if you will, Paint pictures of scenes that evoke for us thoughts to other texts of Scripture. And so, in fact, what we see in Revelation chapter 4, if you were to go read, I'm not going to because I know you'll fall asleep. I'm not going to go read Ezekiel chapter 1, but if you go read Ezekiel chapter 1, you'll go, oh, I feel like I just read that in Revelation chapter 4. Yes, that's part of the point. As John is trying to say, here, let me tell you about the fullness of what Ezekiel is talking about. It's seen in the person of Jesus. And then we see these kind of four weird animals or things, right? Like there's four different creatures. There's a, a lion and an ox and an eagle and a, like a person. And you're like, huh, what are these things? Well, here's a helpful quote. The most popular and most plausible interpretation is that the four creatures represent the major categories of living things in God's creation. Wild animals, domestic animals, humankind, and flying animals. All that God has created participates in worship back to God, their creator. So what's going on in Revelation chapter 4? All of creation. In heaven and on earth and under the earth are worshiping God. He alone is the one worthy of worship. In fact, what we're trying to see in this picture is all of creation was created to worship. In fact, I'd say it this way. um, All of creation finds its true purpose in worship. That includes you and I. All of creation finds its true purpose in worship. And so you're like, well, um, like, so, okay, I said there'd be a couple side notes. Here's one of them for you today. Um, worship is more than what we do on Sunday morning for 30 minutes. You know, a few songs, that, that's a form of worship, but that's not the only worship. In fact, like, what we do with worship is not just what we do for one hour on Sunday. Like, all right, this is still be a part of corporate worship, like the spoken word together. Not all. In fact, here's what we'd say. Worship is how you and I live every moment of every day. Now, for some of us, we go, okay. Other of us are going, ooh, I don't know, the conversation we had in the car on the way here today, that was worship? Yes. Well, shoot, (laughs) I need to apologize. Um, That wasn't good worship. And I I would go so far as like, um, so here's, um, sometimes I'll hear phrases like, worship wasn't good today. Or I didn't like worship today, and they're talking about church music. Well, here's the good thing for you and I. It wasn't for you. It wasn't for me either. It was for God. And the challenge for us is often we, we, we begin, I mean, I'm, I'm not guilty of this ever. Um, we can make it about us. 
our preferences, our desires. We can live life in such a way that we think we're the center of our life, the center of the universe. We're all guilty at some level, but the reminder in Revelation chapter 4 is it is God who we worship. And so worship is how we live every moment of every day. We are created for worship. And so the question for you and I is this. What are we worshiping? What are we worshiping? And this really is a central theme of the entire book of Revelation. What do we worship? And we'll talk about what that looks like, right? I mean, the, the whole letter talks about how we can worship empire or nations, or we can worship the king, I mean, who is Jesus. Like, that, that becomes this wrestle throughout the book of Revelation. That's, that's one of the central themes of the whole book. And so here's the challenge for us. We see all these kinds of pictures, right? There's reminiscence of Moses on Mount Sinai, the thunder and the lightning. We see this, the seven, we see God's complete power, the seven torches, his complete presence, the seven spirits, feeling not only all of heaven, but all of creation, like God is present. There's no place you and I go that God is not already present. And so right now, maybe you're going, whew, that was really good. Well, good news, we're just through like chapter four. So chapter five, it begins with this scene where John sees this scroll that no one can open in heaven or on earth. No one is worthy to open the scroll. And so what is the scroll? Well, most would argue it's the idea that, I'd say it this way, I actually have a quote here, the scroll in the one seated on the throne is almost certainly intended to be the written course of history. It is the decree of God that when opened will assure that his will is done on earth as it is in heaven. It is God's redemption of all things. When we look at the scroll, none of us are worthy to open it, to read it, to see what God desires to do. And John recognizes there's no one he's ever met who's worthy to do that. And John's sad. Because how will God's purposes ever come about? How will God redeem and restore and make all things new? If no one is worthy to read what God desires for all of creation, what's going to happen? And he weeps. And then one of the elders says to him, hey, don't weep. Look, the Lion of Judah. Now, um, one of the coolest scenes in all of Scripture happens right here. In fact, it, it might be the most important thing of understanding the book of Revelation. John hears lion, and when he looks, he sees lamb. He hears lion, and when he looks, he sees crucified Lamb. It is the coolest picture, I think, in the entire book of Revelation. Not just me, lots of other people before me. Right? We can talk about Genesis chapter 49, where, where Judah comes before Jacob to get his blessing. And in that blessing, he says, you're like a lion cub, you know. And then we can talk about, it says, the one that comes from the line of David, the root of David, which is a reference to Isaiah chapter 11. We are going to read just part of that. Sorry, it's a lot of reading today. If you didn't bring a Bible, you can get out your phone. But we're reading from Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 11, it'll be on the screen as well. Here's what Isaiah chapter 11 says. A shoot will come up from the stump of Jesse. From his roots, a branch will bear fruit. The spirit of the Lord will rest on him. The spirit of wisdom and of understanding. The spirit of counsel and of might. The spirit of the knowledge and fear of the Lord. 
And he will delight in the fear of the Lord. He will not judge by what he sees with his eyes or decide by what he hears with his ears. But with righteousness, he will judge the needy. With justice, he will give decisions for the poor of the earth. He will strike the earth with the rod of his mouth. With the breath of his lips, he will slay the wicked. Righteousness will be his belt and faithfulness, the sash around his waist. The wolf will live with the lamb. The leopard will lie down with the goat, the calf and the lion and the yearling together. And a little child will lead them. The cow will feed with the bear. Their young will lie down together, and the lion will eat straw like the ox. The infant will play near the cobra's den, and the young child will put its hand into the viper's nest. They will neither harm nor destroy on all my holy mountain. For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. In that day, the root of Jesse will stand as a banner for the peoples. The nations will rally to him, and his resting place will be glorious. Did you catch the picture that Isaiah writes there? Lions and lambs don't lay down together. Bears don't eat with cows. They eat cows, but they don't eat with. And so what we see in this picture, in this throne room, is that the lion is not the lion as we think. The lion becomes the lamb. In fact, if we were to jump ahead to Revelation 21, it's the lamb that lights the new Jerusalem. This idea that it's the lion becomes the lamb, and the the lamb doesn't turn back into lion. The lion is always lamb. Because we live in a world where the economy of the world says power is seen in might, and so we think lion, yeah. And God says, in my economy, you want to see power? Here's power. It's sacrificial lamb. It's slaughter. It takes the economies of our world and it flips it upside down and says this. Did you not catch this? At the center of redemption is not an image of power, but an image of self-giving, sacrificial love. The slaughtered lamb is the mark of victory. The lion is the lamb. And this is the central theme of the entire book of Revelation. And we see not just in chapter 4, but also in chapter 5, especially like verse 8, the same instruments that were used to, to worship the one who sat on the throne, God himself, is the same instruments to worship, to worship the lamb. In other words, God and Jesus are one and the same. And God comes to us, he comes to us as Jesus in the form of person, right? I know, Revelation's hard because it's all kinds of pictures. I wish it was just clearer. I know, me too. In fact, if you don't know this, like lots of the earlier years, like John Calvin wrote commentaries for the entire Bible, except for the book of Revelation. And not because he died before he got done. Martin Luther didn't want it even in the Bible. He was like, just leave that thing out. Lots of people were like that, by the way. It barely made it in, like the whole long story for that. Why? Because it's like all these pictures, it's painting pictures with big brush strokes, not puzzle pieces. And so here's the challenge for you and I, to recognize that all things are created to worship the one who is the Lamb. So we begin to see this kind of picture in verse 9. I love this line. It says that it was purchased for God, right? All of creation, people were purchased for God. Verse 9. 
right? What does that mean? Like you think, well, is it kind of like I need to pay money for them kind of like a slavery where I buy people? No, it's the actual opposite of that. What we see in verse 9, the word purchase there, the Greek word there, is what would mean if I was going to go to someone who was a slave and I was going to buy their freedom. And so what it says is Jesus purchased all of humanity to freedom. And in that freedom, we come to know what are we freed from? Well, for many of us, it's just from ourselves, but from our sin, from evil that so easily entangles us. We are purchased for freedom through Jesus. So it's the conquering of evil through Jesus' self-sacrifice as a lamb. All right, so like you're going, okay, you just said a lot in a little bit of time. I have no idea what you're talking about. Okay, for us today, how about this? One more Greek word. I know, put your thinking up for just one more minute. Like, the Greek word is kenosis, which means the act of self-emptying. Or, said another way, Jesus relinquished, he self-emptied himself for the sake of you and I. He laid down his divinity so he could be the sacrifice for us, so that we could be purchased from whatever has hindered us or enslaved us, so we could know the fullness of God's love and God's presence, so we could know the depth of God's grace and God's mercy, so we could know the character of God is seen in Jesus, and it is selfless, sacrificial, self-giving love. He emptied himself. Will you believe in a God who loves all of creation in such a way that he would empty himself so we could know the fullness of that love? We know that when Jesus is the only one worthy to unroll the scroll about how God wants to redeem and restore and make all things new. And he invites us in this kenotic act to self-empty ourselves. To lay down whatever it is in our own lives that keeps us from knowing the fullness of who God is. To live a life of worship, to self-empty ourselves, to lay it down, to entrust it to him and say, God, I'm going to leave it all here with you and trust that you desire the best for me. I'm going to believe that your son came and died so that I could know the fullness of your love, so that I could know what your grace is like in my life, so that I could have meaning and purpose and live a life that matters, so that I could know life to its full. It's the same way that Jesus goes to his followers and says, do you want to know how to have a real life, life that leads to life? Lose your life, and then you'll find it. Because if you keep trying to find your life, you're just going to lose it. But if you lose your life for my sake, for the kingdom of God... In the self-emptying, the kenotic act that you are called to, you will find that I am enough for you. See, the world in which we live tempts us to fill our life with all kinds of stuff over and over again. Like, it's, the list is not new. Power, money, sex, control, consumerism, whatever it is. It's not a new list. It's a really old list. We sometimes, in kind of like spiritual language, say the passions of the flesh those things. But when we self-empty ourselves, when we let go, 
God begins to fill us with something radically different that we never knew was possible. And so what if we might lose our life for his sake? What we might just find is that we find true life that leads to life. Back to where we started. This probably requires for us to begin to see not just the scriptures, but all the world with new lenses. For some of us, we need new prescriptions. We might need to relearn how we even read the Bible. We might need to relearn who God actually is. We might need to reorient us. Or maybe we need to say for the very first time, God, I believe that in ways that are beyond my imagination, that you love me more than I could ever comprehend, that you would willingly die for me to know the depth of your love. So that I no longer have to be enslaved to things that would hinder me to evil or sin or brokenness or my own selfish ambitions, but you can free me from that so I can know who you are and who I am created to be because you and I are literally created for worship. And Revelation 4 and 5 paints us a picture that says this, there will be a day when all of creation will worship. And the question for you and I is, what will we worship? And so this morning, um, in just a moment, we'll, we'll stand and we'll sing and we'll pray. And, and I want to just give you opportunity today that if you find yourself going, God, I, I just want to rest in your presence. I want to let go of things that have been holding me tightly, that I need to surrender some things to you, that there's, there's some self-emptying, some kenotic act in my life. I need to empty some things. I need to lay them down. Right? Sometimes, like, they're not even sinful things. Like, that's, I think sometimes we kind of have a misnomer that, that if I confess something or I let go of something, it must be, like, so sinful. Maybe it is. Sometimes it's like, God, I just need to trust you with my family. God, I just need to trust you with my education. God, I just need to trust you with my career. I just need to trust that you love me the way you say you do. I just need to let go of some things that I, I need to be more humble. I, I need to let go of my pride. I need to let go of whatever preferences I have. God, will you help me to empty myself of these things? And then will you fill me with your spirit? And so this morning, or, or maybe it's like, God, I just need to leave some stuff with you. Stuff that's weighing me down, some fears or worries or concerns, I just need to let them go. And so this morning, um, as I pray and as we sing, I'm just going to invite you. We, we think there's nothing inherently special about pieces of wood with little kneeling things so that way your knees don't hurt, right? We call them altars. Uh, they're just places of prayer. But we do think there's something cool that happens when we step out in faith and we move forward and we say, God, I'm trusting you. I'm emptying myself of whatever it is that's holding me back, and I'm trusting you. And we believe this is a a space, a kind of sacred space where God meets us there. I mean, God can do it in your seat, and he can do it at home, he can do it anywhere, because there's nowhere you go that God is not present, but we think there's something special about an act, about physical movement, about trusting him. And so this morning, if you want, as we, as we pray and as we sing, if you want to come and kneel and say, God, I don't want to empty some things to you. I want to just trust some parts of my life. I want to confess some sins. I want to lay down some burdens. I want to just, whatever it might be, I just want to pray for my kids. And you're welcome to come as we pray. And the question you and I then get to ask as we leave this day is, what are we worshiping? And is it the kind of worship we want to define our life? Father, will you help us today as we enter into these moments together? 
that as we desire to be people defined by you and your love and your mercy and your grace, that we would be people who would come to know your love and mercy and grace. That whatever it is that hinders us from entrusting our whole self to you, we would let go. That we'd recognize all of creation is designed to worship you. That not only is Jesus worthy, not only does the lion become the lamb, but we see in the person of Jesus that your love knows no ends or no bounds, that all of heaven and earth and under the earth and all of creation, you desire for us to know that you, you want us to know that you desire to redeem and restore. And so, Father, this morning, maybe there's something in us that needs restored, redeemed. And we need to empty something of us. And so, Father, this morning, in these moments together, may you help us to be your people more and more. May we live lives of worship. May they define our lives. And so we pray all of this in your son Jesus' name.